1: Hi, it's Brendan O'Neill here. The Spike podcast will get underway in just a second. But before that, I want to say a huge thank you to those who have signed up to become regular donors to Spike since we did a call out on the Spiked podcast and my podcast last week. Spiked has no paywall or subscriber model. To continue doing what we do, we rely on donations from our supporters, especially those who give money every month. So if you enjoy our work, please do consider becoming a regular donor. One-off donations are brilliant and always greatly appreciated, but it is by building up our bank of regular supporters that we can really plan for the future and for bigger and better things. Just £5 a month can have a huge impact. So to those who already give, thank you. And if you don't, but you would like to start supporting us, just go to spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button to sign up. That's spiked-online.com and the big red donate button. Thank you. And now, on with the show.
2: Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers. Uh, Ella Whelan is away this week, but joining us instead is Spikes editor, Brendan O'Neill. Hello. And as ever, we also have Spike's Deputy Editor, Tom Slater. Hi. Coming up on the show, we'll discuss impeachment, Davos and Lawrence Fox.
3: President Trump is accused of coercing a foreign leader into interfering in our elections. I had a very innocent conversation with a very fine gentleman. Are we here because of a phone call? Or are we here... Because since the president was sworn into office, there was a desire to see him removed.
0: The president is engaged in this cover-up because he is guilty.
2: The Senate trial of Donald Trump began this week. Trump was impeached by the House at the end of last year. He's accused of seeking the help of the Ukrainian government for his re-election campaign and of obstructing Congress. The Senate will eventually decide whether to convict Trump of these charges and oust him from office. Freddie Gray, editor of The Spectator USA, is joining us down the line for this section of the podcast. Freddie, can you first tell us a bit about where we are in the proceedings and and what you make of it so far?
3: Well, after some delay, and ironically the delay towards the end came from the Democratic side on impeachment because Nancy Pelosi, I think, was never really fully convinced that it was a good idea, but she sort of felt press-ganged into doing it. So we now have a Senate trial beginning. And once again... I suppose you, if you want to call them the never-Trumpers or, or the kind of the anti-Trump uh, brigades of America are relying on a, a massive crook to damn Trump.
2: So that's Lev Parnas, one of the associates of Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani.
3: And I think once again, it looks like the massive crook is going to turn out to be a liar and a fraud. And we've seen this over and over again in the last few years with all of the various Russia Gate elements that always seemed to be, there always seemed to be some great kind of, you know, deus ex machina moment when the truth would be revealed and everyone would suddenly realise that Trump was this terrible villain and crook (laughs) and far more sinister than he seemed. But unfortunately, you know, the people who were making these allegations themselves were pretty crooked as well. So, I've said all along, and I'm, I'm not the only one who said it, that impeachment helps Trump. Yeah, I think he even knows that it helps him. Mm. I mean, I think a very interesting element of this is Matt Drudge, who I'm sure uh, Spike listeners will know. Matt Drudge's the Drudge Report, which is the, the sort of go-to right-wing news feed for most of Middle America has been very big on the impeachment story, which is very odd because most of Trump world are very anti the impeachment story. Mm. And Drudge is very close to uh, Jared Kushner. And I think the reason that he's pushing this story so much is that he knows it helps Trump in the polls because it totally vindicates the idea that Trump has always pushed, which is the swamp will do anything to destroy him because Mm. voters love Trump, but the elite
2: doesn't. Yeah, that's a really good um, kind of summary of where we're at. Tom, what did you want to... It
4: just sort of strikes me that two things in this can be true at the same time, you know, one of which is that what Trump did or is alleged to have done, um, which I don't think that many people are necessarily disputing, it's just the kind of seriousness of of it, I guess, that is up for discussion at this point. That was clearly wrong. But then what is the proper way to judge him for it or to damn him for it? Um, And it seems to me that that should be at the ballot box and and not on the floor of the Senate. Now, I'm not necessarily qualified to say the kind of constitutional (laughs) arguments in all of this. I think it's fair to say say that um, even though people like Alan Dershowitz have been dragged a lot in the kind of liberal media over the last couple of weeks, treated as a bit of this kind of mad turncoat, the arguments that he and others are making as far as this just not simply rising to the level of high crimes and misdemeanours, and that this is not something that the framers had in mind in relation to impeachment, I think are fair ones. And it's also something that seems to strike a when you think about all the other various presidents who've done various other nefarious things um, and haven't been impeached for it you know as yeah. we've talked about before we you know whether it's Reagan and the Iran-Contra scandal or any other kind of various dubious foreign entanglements that we've seen in, over the years but I think for all the legalistic arguments and it's often presented particularly by Democrats as a kind of question of them just executing their constitutional duty this kind of faux solemnity that they're trying <laughs> to very unconvincingly take on although as Freddie says some people like Nancy Pelosi have obviously always seen this as a tactical Error. It's not illegitimate to ask why that they're doing this, you know, especially given the fact that there have always been people within the Democratic Party who have been agitating for articles of impeachment to be filed, you know, basically within days of Trump being elected in the first place. And there's always been a section of them where this. it's quite clear that this isn't necessarily about just saying these are the limits of the presidency, these are limits of executive power. It's not about putting Trump back in his box, it's about putting Trump voters back in their boxes, yeah. you know, and about saying that... What Trump represented was this aberration, this kind of like virus in the body politic, and it needs to be expelled at all costs and I think what 's clear, and we you know we start to see there' was some Gallup polling out um, in the past week, which suggests there has been a bit of an uptick for Trump, and I think what that really reflects is that a lot of the people who do support him it 's not necessarily that they 're just completely. Fine with what it is that he's done or is alleged to have done, or that they're unfazed by it. I think they recognize what this is about, which is about, again, just trying to reverse that decision that so many sections of the democratic establishment, as well as just liberal media in general, think should never have happened and never been allowed to have happened in the first place.
2: Yeah. I mean, that, that seems to be the one of the overriding concerns that there, there isn't bipartisan support for this. I mean, Freddie, I wonder if you could speak a bit to the divisiveness of the proceedings and, and, you know, what it means that. It doesn't. nobody is seriously predicting that the Republican Senate is going to convict Trump, are they? I mean, so what does no, it all I, mean? Well, I,
3: think, I think there are some never-Trumpers who hold out hope that there will be this <laughs> kind of moment of reckoning. But yeah, I think nobody sane thinks that it will happen. <laughs> this latest impeachment saga is proof that, as Andy Basevich put it so beautifully, the great thing about Trump is that he exposes all the smelly little hypocrisies of Washington, Mm. And this is particularly true if you look at with John Bolton. So John Bolton was Trump's national security advisor, very controversial figure, total sort of war pervert. <laughs> uh, and, and he was he was loathed by you know the people that hate Trump while he was national security advisor and, and feared for, for good reason, because he desperately wants to bomb Iran. But. As soon as he quits the Trump administration or is, is pushed out of the Trump administration, fired, in fact, by Trump, mm. there suddenly started to be this sort of these sort of sympathetic noises about him. And it all came from the fact that it, it, it was thought that he's behind a lot of the Ukraine leaking that went on. So the, a lot of the leaking against Trump over Ukraine. Mm. And so now we have this uh, potential swap that's going to happen, which um, Dershowitz has been talking about, which is that. Hunter Biden, Biden's son, will be put on trial, will be tried, in exchange for Bolton being a witness in the trial as well. Mm. And the the idea is that Bolton, again, there'll be this great moment when Bolton will say, Yes, I like Donald Trump, but what he did here was gravely corrupt and impeachable. Again, I don't think that's going to happen. But it is this sort of it does expose the way in which absolute villains can suddenly become heroes in the eyes of the people <laughs> that hate Trump so long <laughs> as they're willing to help them in the Get Trump Mm. campaign.
1: Yeah. Uh, Brendan? I really agree with Freddie's assessment. And Freddie did a very good piece for the Daily Mail last month about the way in which this whole, the phony nature of this impeachment process could have a really detrimental impact on American democracy, which I think is really true. I think... there's a beautiful irony to all of this, which is that Trump is often depicted by his detractors as this kind of wrecking ball through the American Republic, destroying all the institutions, destroying the nature of democracy itself. But that's far truer, I think, of the impeachment obsessives than it is of Trump himself. And I say that as someone who's not particularly a fan of Trump. But the way in which, I mean, there are, you know, there are two institutions that the people pushing the impeachment process are are attacking. The first is impeachment itself, which is Mm supposed to be reserved for the removal of a genuinely threatening president who's gone basically nuts and is committing all sorts of high crimes and misdemeanours. Trump does not rise to that level at all. So they're demeaning the whole process of impeachment, which is, you know, not necessarily a bad idea that you could have the power to remove a president who had gone insane. So they're demeaning that, but they're also, more importantly, they're demeaning the institution of democracy itself, the basis upon which the American Republic claims its legitimacy, which mm. is, the, which is from the people. And it's so transparent, I think. This is the thing that I find so depressing about this whole discussion. It's so transparent that what they are trying to do is override the voice of the people and, and undercut The uh, 60 plus million people who voted for Trump, who they always thought were mistaken, who they always thought were hoodwinked and misled and and stupid and racist and all those other uh, abusive terms that they throw at them. And this is the use of a supposedly rare measure To achieve the utterly undemocratic elitist end of removing a president that the liberal establishment doesn't like. So in terms of the wrecking ball through American institutions and American values, right now, I think that's been done far more by Trump haters Mm. than it is by Trump himself. So completely agree with Freddie and Tom that it seems perfectly logical that Trump will benefit from this because, you know, American voters, being sensible people, will look at this process and think, what are these people doing? Why are they so uh, hell-bent on undermining a, a very large democratic vote? And why are they uh, using rare measures in such a cynical way? So I think it will benefit Trump enormously. And it could be the thing that seals his victory in 2020.
3: Let's mm. see. I think I think that's absolutely right, Brendan. And I think that I mean, it's testament to America's civic commitment to democracy that in fact impeachment hasn't Mm. been used at every available opportunity so far because it is this sort of you know break clause in the constitution to override the executive
2: you're listening to the spike podcast spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls all of our content is free We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. The world's richest and most powerful people took their private jets to Davos this week for the annual World Economic Forum. At the top of the agenda was climate change. Greta Thunberg was there to give the global elite a stern telling off for the second year in a row. Donald Trump provided a modicum of dissent by denouncing the prophets of doom and their predictions of the apocalypse. The 1% were also joined by Micah White, co-founder of Occupy Wall Street, the self-professed voice of the 99%. (laughs) And a spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion was also there among other activists. Tom, have you had any thoughts on on davos
4: well it was really striking how this year you see this big embrace of kind of green capitalism um and i think it really backs up this point that we've made for some time which is despite all this kind of posturing against big business and there is still kind of in the heart of the capitalist (laughs) elite a a really odd embrace of all this stuff but i could talk about it more but i'd just be ripping off the points that you made in your piece this (laughs) week so what you know what what was your take on it more importantly
2: well I i think the key thing to understand about the capitalist system of the you know how how the global economy or the western you know Powers, how their economies have run for the past 40 years is that it's actually been pretty dreadful. And there's been low productivity, you know, low growth, low wage growth. It is not delivering the goods. And the capitalist class have been aware of this for some time. They know that their position in society cannot simply be justified by pointing to, you know, increased living standards because change and improvements are so slow. I'd recommend re- actually reading Phil Mullen's book, Creative Destruction, where this, this really lays out the extent of the problem in a great deal of detail. You know, comparing the post-war boom to the current period of, of of stagnation, or the Long Depression, as as many people call it, and then you kind of have the environmental movement is picking up steam especially among elites around the kind of same time as we have this kind of long depression setting in so actually at the third ever davos the club of rome which is a very influential think tank contains all kinds of heads of state former heads of state economists uh, high-ranking civil servants they're invited to give a speech on a report called the limits to growth and that basically sets out that you know essentially economic growth is environmental. Unsustainable; that we can't keep on growing the economy and increasing the world's wealth. And, and what's interesting is, I think that there is a really neat kind of convergence of interests here. Because if you th- if you think about what environmentalists are arguing, they are arguing that we need to, you know, lower ho- our horizons. We should expect lower growth. We should expect to live um, within our means, so to speak. But you know, on a planetary scale rather than a, on a monetary scale. And and there is this convergence of interests where both are essentially both environmentalists and the one percent are quite happy to say that things aren't going to get much better mm. and uh, people should make do with less and and that's kind of what I try to outline in in, in my piece. So you you weren't surprised by the? Uh- <laughs> I was absolutely not surprised because it's you know the the interest in environmentalism has been going on for years and, and years as I, as I said since the 1970s. Yeah, and. Even in the past, you know, couple of years, you had Greta Thunberg appearing at the World Economic Forum this year and last year. Mm. Last year, you had um, David Attenborough there in conversation with Prince William. Prince Charles, who is a noted environmentalist, was there this year as well. It, it, it's interesting because, I mean, a lot of the time. We've, when we've discussed a lot about the kind of connections between environmentalism and aristocracy and this um, sense of stewardship over the land we've discussed a lot about the interests of politicians and technocrats in the climate issue and how you know it gives them a kind of means through which to manage the world over the heads of the people but I think very few people, aside from Spiked I would say are, are really actually pointing out the capitalist interests mm-hmm. in promoting the yeah. ideas around climate change and environmentalism because there is this view view that somehow environmentalism is a cover for socialism yeah that it's a a left-wing philosophy when i I think nothing could be further than the truth donald trump described them as as radical socialists and you think well look around the room at davos there aren't any socialists there
1: yeah I, i completely agree which i which is why i thought your piece on spike this week fraser was so important which was just to remind people that if anything Environmentalism is a cover for capitalism rather than mm. socialism because it allows the capitalist class to justify or apologise for their complete and often catastrophic failure to, you know, make good On their promise of plenty and to make good on their promise of remaking the world in man's image and all those kind of early bourgeois ideals which have just fallen flat and particularly really from the 1970s onwards, which is the Club of Rome moment Mm. when they kind of lose faith even in pursuing that project, never mind in the possibility of it becoming true. I think what's really important, I mean, the the thing that strikes me about Davos is that it's so obviously... A gathering of capitalists to moan about the destructive nature of mankind. And, mm. and it's not remotely surprising that their focus since really the seventies onwards has been on climate change and environmentalism and population growth and all those other issues. Because this really cuts to the heart of radical socialist politics more broadly. I mean, it's really worth remembering that. Karl Marx wrote about Thomas Malthus, Uh, Marx Mm. wrote uh, many things about Thomas Malthus and his predictions of overpopulation, which Karl Marx described as a libel against the human race. But even better was um, Isaac Rubin, the Russian revolutionary, who wrote a fantastic piece in 1929 on the history of economic thought, which was a complete repudiation of the Malthusian view and really put forward what was then considered to be the radical left-wing view, which is that it's wrong to naturalise poverty. Mm. And poverty has absolutely nothing to do with nature or the shrinking of nature's bounty or the disappearance of resources and stuff. It's entirely a social problem and therefore it is susceptible to social solutions. And Isaac Rubin then ended up in Stalin's gulags and was killed in the purges of the 1930s, like many of those radicals were. But it's really worth just revisiting some of those arguments, Mm -hmm. right, from Marx through to Rubin, and just looking at how the left really grew out of a challenge to the idea that poverty was a natural phenomenon. Yeah, and that's I mean, really where the left comes from. It really is, and it really is the insistence that the poverty of the human imagination is a far greater problem than the supposed poverty of natural resources. So to see all these supposed leftists, uh, you know, leftists are a bit cynical about Davos, right? Mm. They think, "Oh, you rich people in your bare feet and your mm. yachts making lectures." But they have completely and utterly bought into the politics of environmentalism. And it is really worth revisiting those revolutionary radical ideas from the 18 18- 40s through to the 1920s, in which Marxists and others were saying, hold on, poverty is not a natural phenomenon. Poverty is a product of social relations, and therefore we can fix it. And that's what the left has completely abandoned.
4: And it's interesting as well that not all leftists are being sniffy about Davos this year. (laughs) As you mentioned in your introduction, Fraser, was um, Michael White, one of the co-founders of Occupy Wall Street, was saying that he was going along this year. And what I've been kind of interested in is it's quite clear what the capitalist class get out of this green capitalism or this stakeholder capitalism which is Mm. one of the kind of buzzwords of Davos has been for some time this kind of idea that companies shouldn't just have a responsibility to their shareholders and to the bottom line but to the people who work for them for society more broadly even the planet and it's clear what capitalists get out of that because they have lost faith in what is in essence their kind of project or their position it kind of also plays the great twin role of salving their guilt Mm. (laughs) for the nature of society whilst at the same time keeping their position almost entirely intact Um, what i find more interesting is what it is that um, draws supposed progressives or leftists if not just to davos but at least certainly to some of those um, values which i think is really quite interesting and you see it with the michael white piece where he talks about and this is a direct quote, the revolutionary potential of Davos yeah. insofar as they're kind of off the...
2: <laughs> if there is hope, it lies in the billionaires, <laughs> as George Orwell did not say. Absolutely <laughs> incredible. It's,
4: I just think it's really fascinating, especially because of all the rhetoric around Occupy was the, the 1% versus 99%. Yeah. But what he's making so obviously clear is that he doesn't really believe... He might believe in the um, poor situation of the 99%, but he doesn't really believe in their agency in yeah. any kind of meaningful sense. Um, and in the same way, some... Left wingers have been drawn towards, you know, transnational forms of government in order to try and basically make changes that they otherwise can't convince the public of. of um, mm. In the democratic forum, you're seeing a similar thing with the transnational corporate elite yeah. and a kind of a, an appeal to them. I think that's really quite interesting in that respect. Mm. Really reflects how they're as dislocated in some respects from ordinary people as you know the people spending 500 pounds a night minimum for a hotel room in, in Davos in order <laughs> to go to all these things. I think what's important is this model of stakeholder capitalism or caring capitalism or capitalism of a conscience, or whatever it is you want to call it, is it is really bad for politics. Yeah. Um, and the yeah. upshot of it is that it really empowers elites more than it does anything else. It doesn't take away any of their power. It mm. makes them the people who are doling out power. In a roundabout way, funnily enough, this is a point that Milton Friedman made. <laughs> no radical Democrat, he, and funnily enough, yeah. in about 1970, because there was already this discussion around social responsibility in corporations, and he made the point about it that it was bad not only for business, which is obviously something he was quite concerned about, but also that corporations wielding power um, in line with what small groups of activists want, which is kind of a quite good way to sum up Davos just bypasses the political process it's people trying to do as he put it via undemocratic means what they can't do via Mm. democratic means and I think the fact that even he recognised that I think is actually quite significant now obviously he goes off on one and says it's all about socialism (laughs) (laughs) but this is business buying into the ideas of socialism which is obviously nonsense but it's actually the precise opposite of that the the recognition on behalf of obviously capitalist elites who we know would assume this but also um, people within the cultural elites or the people within the activist set that social change is impossible with the public so you have to go about it by other means and the the consequence of that is that despite it might deliver certain policy outcomes, you think are positive for whatever reason, um, it's only going to further disempower people the, and empower the elite as a consequence of all of that.
2: Well, that, that's exactly right. And, and obviously we've, the other form of capitalism we've been enjoying commenting on has been woke capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think what's interesting is that obviously people will just say, you know, some leftists will just say this is all greenwashing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's a way to mm. launder the reputations of these horrible capitalists. I mean, you know, there's, there is... Some some truth in that thinking of BP becoming beyond petroleum or you know the, the kind of sustainability indexes that various uh, companies now subscribe to or you know Goldman Sachs is now divesting of coal and BlackRock is doing a, a, a making similar moves BlackRock claiming some of the kind of largest um, sort of pension pots and things like that in the, in, the, mm-hmm. in them it's uh, you know there's a lot of kind of divestment from fossil fuels and all things like that coming on but at the end of the day it is really about the loss of faith in the ability of the capitalist system to, to kind of produce wealth I I think it's, it's partly cynical. Mm. But also mm. it, it goes much deeper than that.
1: But I think, uh, I think that's absolutely right. I think the cynicism aspect of it is the least interesting. Mm. Uh, and that's absolutely there. You know, they will have discussions in their boardroom saying, you know, how can we appear green? How can we appear mm. more eco-friendly? How can we appear nicer to the public? So that cynicism happens, but that's far less interesting than the real driver here. And the real driver here is something that's been on, going on so, almost since the birth of capitalism itself, which is looking for an excuse for poverty mm. yeah. and looking for a way in which the failure of capitalism to develop in an even way and the failure of capitalism to develop it, uh, globally can be talked about without exposing the failures of capitalism itself. The thing that most frustrates me about the environmentalism issue over the past 5, 10, 15 years is this presumption that it's a left-wing position. In my mind, it has absolutely nothing to do with being left-wing. I mean, literally nothing. Red Mm. and green should never be seen, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Put Um, it on t T-shirt. That's (laughs) that's the next Spike T-shirt. And I think that's a really important point to make because, you know, Spike often talks about the fact that we consider ourselves to be from the left, we come from the left, we think that we have kind of pretty left-wing views. And I think one of the good examples of that is the fact that we still adhere to the ideal of economic growth, human progress, actually expanding the human footprint rather than shrinking it, all to the aim of liberating humankind from poverty. And that was always the aim of these kind of uh, radical movements of the past. What's happened over the past few years is that you've had this simultaneous abandonment of principle. So on the capitalist bourgeois side, you've had the abandonment of the old goal of growth and Mm. expansion and exploration and on the left side you've had the abandonment of the goal of putting pressure on the capitalist class to grow have more stuff have more production have more consumption and now what we're seeing and this year in davos really sums it up is the coming together of those two excuse-making sections of society who now have this love in over the question of environmentalism. But I think for many, many people out there, it's a pretty transparent effort to disguise the failure of modern society to provide everyone with a kind of plentiful life.
2: And the most most transparent and problematic kind of aspect of that is you see the way that carbon dioxide is demonised. And I mentioned this in the piece, you know, countries that produce carbon dioxide are just richer countries. That's that's all it indicates. Whether you're talking on a global scale, you know, African countries produce less carbon than Western countries. And now environmentalists use this to say, oh, aren't African countries doing well? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and 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 but yeah. even within the UK, you know, carbon emissions have been going down for the past thirty years or so. Mm. They've gone down around thirty-eight percent. Something near half of that is down to deindustrialization and industry moving abroad. So, you know, the kind of environmental movement allows this, what I think is objectively terrible news, the decline of certain regions, certain industries to be represented as, as this kind of moral good. Mm. I mean, it's quite shocking, really. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher and more. And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. The actor Lawrence Fox appeared on Question Time last Thursday and made some pretty moderate and sensible points about Meghan Markle, white privilege, and sanctimonious celebrities.
4: Outrageous.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But even a week later, his appearance is still causing outrage. Um, So over the past week, we've had the Minority Ethnic Members Committee of Equity, the Actors' Union, um, using Twitter to brand Fox a disgrace and to unequivocally denounce his views. Um, journalists have called Fox uh, far-right and alt-right and many people have called for him to be um, blacklisted from the acting profession. Brendan, Lawrence appeared on your podcast um, <laughs> the day after question time, which everyone should listen to, by the way. Mm. Uh, what have you made of this response? I,
1: I, I'm... I'm genuinely shocked. And I say that as someone who is is not easily shocked by the current state of public debate, because it is in a pretty uh, parlous state. But even I am shocked by the response to Lawrence Fox, because as you say, Fraser, he didn't say anything racist. He didn't say anything far right. He didn't say anything disgusting or outrageous. He said really sensible things, quite refreshing things. I'm sure loads of people watching Question Time will have been nodding along in agreement. But the response has been... It, it, absolutely hysterical. I mm. mean, it's been genuinely hysterical. In both senses of the word. It's, it? be, it's just <laughs> been, yeah, hysterical. And like in terms of. Meltdown and hilarious. <laughs> but it's, but the, the equity thing, the attempt by the ethnic minority wing of equity to have him effectively blacklisted from film. So they were calling on the industry to denounce him. I thought was just like, you know, modern McCarthyism. But then the meltdown on amongst the Twitterati and in sections of the media, the way they're talking about him is, is astonishing. And I think what it really reveals is that. It, they think it reveals determination to face down prejudiced views, as they presume he holds. What it actually reveals is their alarming intolerance of anyone who thinks differently to them. I mean, it is such a brilliant revelation of how completely and utterly intolerant the kind of cultural elite or the woke elite or the, the leftish liberal elite is of anyone who thinks differently to them. I mean, mm. that's been the real lesson of the Lawrence Fox moment. And I think it's a really good lesson to see because what it confirms is that they will not brook any dissent whatsoever. Mm. They will not tolerate any dissent. They will not tolerate any questioning. And their view is that if you are in their world, if you're a cultural or if you're part of that, what they presume to be their world... You must adhere 100% to their ideology. So I just think the meltdown has been so revealing and so bracing mm. for those of us who think we need to have freedom of speech and freedom of thought. And I think what it really speaks to is is the almost violent shrinking of the parameters of acceptable thought, which has been going on for a few years now, but it's it's really intensified over the past couple of years. So anyone who holds views that would have been perfectly acceptable 10 years ago, which is judge people by character rather than colour, if you have a penis, you're a man, not a woman, all these views which were perfectly acceptable 5, 10 years ago, because of the shrinking of the parameters of acceptable thought, courtesy of the woke lunatics, for holding those views, you can now find yourself way out of the acceptable mainstream. Mm. So this is not about Lawrence Fox being prejudiced. I don't think he's prejudiced at all. He was incredibly personable and sensible on the podcast that we did with him. It's about the prejudice, intolerance, and censorious instincts off the kind of cultural elite. And that's the real problem in society right now. I thought it was really striking as well, the fact that I I kind of thought, you know, the last big
4: crazy question time scandal we had was Nick Griffin in 2009. (laughs) And there's an interesting kind of comparison point Mm. when you're talking about Mm. the level of intolerance. So you've got a genuine, you know, extremist, fascist, bigot going on. Naturally causes a fair bit of consternation. There's an argument about freedom of speech. I think, you know spite to many others suggesting that he should be put on just so that he could be ridiculed and whatever
2: which is what happened which is
4: exactly what happened and as we all know the BNP collapsed almost as a consequence of all of that because he was so ridiculous it's just fascinating the the response almost been on the same scale Mm -hmm. (laughs) for someone who went on and as Brendan said said nothing racist nothing bigoted just aired opinions that basically just rub woke people and just woke people up the wrong way you know disagreeing with the idea that the backlash to Meghan Markle is all a question of racism you know being irritated by identity politics being irritated irritated by the hypocrisy of a lot of green politics. All this kind of stuff is just so common sense. And now we're at the position in which to be commonsensical is to be an extremist almost yeah. if on the yeah. same kind of scale you know the write-ups have been hilarious <laughs> there's no other word for it you know there was that new statesman piece which said the radicalisation of Lawrence Fox shows <laughs> the worrying power of right-wing YouTube and all these of <laughs> bizarre situations which just shows how much the kind of boundaries for acceptable thought um, and speech um, have shrunk and the one thing I think is quite striking and that is worth bearing in mind is I think in the wake of the Lawrence Fox thing a lot of people like ourselves who were, it was obviously quite a, you know it was a breath of fresh air, the fact that we were just seeing someone, you know, completely speak out against all of these ridiculous orthodoxies. But there was a little bit of an overexcitement as far as people feeling as if that, you know, that the battle is being won yeah. in some respects. The yeah. idea that the tide is turning, the fact that he was able to make these points shows that people aren't going to put up with it anymore. If anything, I think the response to it demonstrates how much we've still got our work cut out for us and all of this stuff because they've doubled down. Yeah. Um, they've become even more intolerant. Even more extreme. This isn't just from a few commentators. This is from, you know, again, the actor's own trade union coming Mm -hmm. out and making these statements, although they later deleted them, we should make clear. It's just so obvious that the desire of the kind of cultural elite to maintain all of these kind of shibboleths, despite the fact they're absolutely ridiculous, just to propound this kind of identity politics is so intense that even just a very commonsensical repos to it, very much couched as he did in the arguments of you know color blindness and of yeah. progressivism and all the rest of it is basically just painted as racist and ugly and bigoted and so i think it's just worth bearing in mind that whilst it certainly feels like we're in a bit of a moment where anti-woke politics is having a bit of a breakthrough and i think we can all enjoy that for a moment it's still very clear that um we have our work cut out for us in that respect because people are getting more ridiculous by the day
2: i think i think that's right and i think we have to remind ourselves that lawrence we we love you and we know you listen to this show but Lawrence is, is, <laughs> this is where he's getting all of his nefarious ideas yeah, yeah. Where, <laughs> yeah. I, why didn't they blame us for radicalizing i'm a bit upset yeah no but, it's it, it's one person, not an mm. anti woke moment or movement or anything like that. And you know, which is interesting because you see that from you know that kind of oversized reaction from both sides. Um, yeah. My favorite headline was "The Dangerous Rise of Men Who Won't Date Woke Women." Yeah, <laughs> but who are the men? I mean, it was referring to one of um, Lawrence's interviews in in the Times. I mean. This, you've had kind of Owen Jones and, and friends of his um, worrying about the coming anti-woke backlash and yeah. how it's going to impact on minorities and and women and, which is of course complete nonsense yeah, but yeah, yeah. how can one person strike so much fear into, into these people it's, 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 it's fascinating. So genuinely insane the,
4: the, the danger at this moment is that we allow to happen with the kind of battles over woke politics and identity politics the same thing that happened with political correctness in the yeah. 1990s insofar as you had um, this pushback against political correctness this pushback particularly in the US against the attempt to criminalise speech. Obviously, we've criminalised speech in this country for a long time, so that was kind of a lost battle. But nevertheless, you know, you had people like Nadine Strossen obviously fighting back against um, hate speech laws, fighting it back against kind of anti-porn feminism, fighting out against, you know, speech codes and university campuses. And there was this narrative that because mainly they they won the legal battles over mm. that kind of stuff, that PC kind of went away, that it kind of had been had to kind of beat this hasty retreat whereas actually it just became more embedded in certain cultural institutions and universities it became more the kind of ideology of the day and i think the woke politics is the kind of successor to political correctness this is kind of far more extreme even more racialized even more identitarian even more censorious in some respects kind of movement there's could easily be a kind of repeat of that situation
1: which i think we'd have to be very very wary of I completely agree with that. And I think, um, the, the, the great thing about Lawrence Fox's intervention into all of this is it, it exposes the intolerance of the woke brigade. And it also provides a kind of a sense of relief for ordinary people who are, who do not share those woke prejudices and who actually believe in old fashioned things like equality mm. and democracy <laughs> and freedom of speech. So that that's why Lawrence Fox, his his moment is an important moment. But I think in if we're going to deepen it and push further and really counter this kind of poisonous culture, then that will involve a huge amount of legwork and continuing work. So that, that's a really important point. The key thing I would say is that it's just absolutely the, the one thing that it's so important to challenge is this idea that the woke lobby or the PC lobby or the kind of identitarian lobby is the friend of minority groups. Mm, Yeah. Completely and utterly untrue. The most untrue thing I can think of right now. They're the worst enemy that uh, minority groups could ask for. They think things should be censored in order to protect minority groups from offence, which is racially paternalistic. They think that you need to change the rules of getting into university or getting into the workplace in order to make it easier for oppressed racial groups as compared to white people, as we've seen with the West Midlands Fire Service, which now has a a, a recruitment test in which white people have to score 70 and black people have to score 60, that is racist against black people. Mm. And you see this again and again throughout the woke agenda, this reduction of minority groups to just these pathetic childlike figures who need the likes of Owen Jones and other woke people to to protect them and look after them and, and pursue their interests. It's racial paternalism. And I think it's really important for those of us who believe in genuine equality and in humanism to absolutely confront that and to say that, you know, the Martin Luther King idea, which is the idea that Lawrence Fox was promoting on Question Time, which is the judgment of people according to character rather than color, is actually still a really important ideal. And the woke ideal that has replaced that, which is that you must judge everything through a racial lens, and you must pity racial groups and treat them as victims, is actually just really repugnant. So we mustn't let the woke lobby assume the moral high ground because i in my view they are uh, just about the worst enemy that minority groups could have and those of us who want to challenge that and have a genuinely humanist form of politics are far more on the side of equality than they are
2: you've been listening to the spike podcast For more Spike content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.